Consider the following scenario. An athlete runs out onto the field or court of play, every element of their physical being tracked. Almost imperceptible sensors capture information on everything from real-time heart rate to muscle damage and are so minuscule that the athlete almost forgets that they're wearing them. Markless motion capture systems constantly scan the athlete for signs of gait abnormality with millimetre-level precision. The highly accurate data is fed back to the athlete and coach in a real-time manner, ready to intervene in the split second before injury ensues. And then it happens. Higher-order signal from the aggregated data feed indicates there's something abnormal. The athlete is alerted with some form of haptic feedback, whether it's a noise or a vibration, and they're informed to stop what they're doing immediately, otherwise incur a hamstring strain. They pull up from their high-intensity sprint just in time, safe in the knowledge that the crisis has been averted for now. This futuristic view of injury prediction that I just described might sound a little far-fetched, but it's perhaps exactly what lies ahead in order to make this practice a working and viable reality. But how far away are we from this scenario eventuating? What needs to happen in order to get there? And is it even a world that athletes want? I'm Sam Robertson and this is One Track Mind. Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. On this week's episode, we're revisiting a topic that we've covered at least in part before on the show, injury prediction. Episode 8 of One Track Mind was dedicated entirely to the problems with injury prediction and we also discussed it at length in episode 32 on baseball. The topic has also cropped up on a number of other shows and has become somewhat of a running theme, considering perhaps my very sceptical stance on the entire area. Additionally, the most read Twitter post I think I've ever published talking about how injury prediction is a waste of time was also entirely dedicated to this topic. I'll post a link to that in the show notes, as I don't want to go over too much old ground here today. The key difference from all of this is that on today's show, I want to focus on how injury prediction actually could work. Despite my misgivings, it's become increasingly clear that not only is injury prediction not going anywhere, it's actually increasing in its prevalence. Now, I suppose this shouldn't be entirely surprising. The problem of injury also isn't going away in most sports, and we probably feel as though we should be making progress on the problem, given the massive amounts of data we currently collect on the health and wellness of athletes. Now, also despite my scepticism, in the past I have made comment that I think perhaps injury prediction will get there one day and become a viable tool for practitioners, even if that day may be quite a long way away. So you might ask, how can I on one hand say that it's a waste of time and on the other hand say that one day it might be useful? Well, when I say that it's a waste of time, I mean that I don't think it's something that people in sport should be working on now or putting money into. It's going to need a whole heap of things to occur that these individuals shouldn't and probably can't lead anyway. So with all that in mind, today I want to talk about what would really need to happen in order to allow for injury prediction to become an actual working reality. Not because I've changed my mind and think that people in sport should find working solutions for this, because I don't, 
but because hopefully by doing this I can help in any small way to dispel a few myths out there on this area and maybe cause people to think twice before tipping time and money and resource into it, particularly at the expense of other far more impactful areas. And also for those that do have the resource, wisdom, time and professional network to conduct the longitudinal large scale research required to progress this area, I hope that this provides some points of use in guiding that work. So for the first time ever on the show, I'm actually going to fly solo and to hopefully prevent you from getting entirely sick of my voice, we'll split the episode into two parts. The first will deal with the key questions that I believe you should ask yourself before commencing any injury prediction project or in fact spending any time and resource on it altogether. The second part, which will come out next week, will deal more with what good looks like for injury prediction moving into the future, along with some of the more technical elements of the problem. So perhaps let's start with a quick recap for those not familiar with this area. When we talk about injury prediction, we are talking about predicting the occurrence, the severity and or the type of injury based on some combination of risk factors. These predictions are almost always informed by both modifiable factors, things like health-related and athlete training-related metrics. Often these are collected from wearables, and sometimes non-modifiable factors as well, including, for example, family history. Now, my criticisms in the past have been to do with just about every single part of injury prediction, from whether it's even a real problem, to the quality and types of data that's collected through to how the predictions are operationalized in practice and even how they're evaluated. So how is injury prediction functioning presently in the field? Well of course it's impossible to know what everyone is doing out there but from what I can tell these are the main ways in which it's being undertaken. First there are some organizations that have built their own injury prediction models in-house and are taking care of each and every aspect of the process from data collection to model implementation and evaluation. Perhaps more prevalent are commercial offerings available to sports teams which provide predictions as a fee-for-service model, or in some cases they're delivered through what are typically referred to as athlete management systems. There are a whole host of those out there now, some of which injury prediction is their sole reason for existing. Other forms of athlete management systems might simply include this as an additional or a even downstream add-on option. And at this point, I don't want to mention any company specifically, but I do want to state that despite the many problems I see with current practice, I don't believe that the majority of these companies are intentionally selling snake oil, for instance, although that undoubtedly does happen in some cases. Also, with respect to the language used in this space, the water has become a little murkier in recent times as different terminology is starting to become more prevalent, and particularly terminology that intentionally avoids directly using the word prediction. And this is probably at least partly due to some of the skepticism and criticism expressed by many around how liberally that term prediction is used. I'll talk a little bit about the differences in explanatory versus predictive modeling in the second part of the show. But some of the terms we're starting to hear being used interchangeably include things like athlete health management, risk reduction, injury prevention. All of these are slightly different, but all relate to injury prediction because 
If they didn't, then they actually couldn't be said to work. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. So, in essence, all of these approaches roughly work the same way. We have a predictive model developed using a range of features extracted from various data sources, which is then run at a given time before training or competition, and then provides a recommendation to a practitioner around either the athlete's risk of being injured, or in some cases, providing a recommendation around whether their planned activities for a day or week for that athlete should be altered. Now, if we're being quite liberal with the definition, we could say that injury prediction happens just about every day with practitioners working with athletes, irrespective of whether they employ any of the methods that I just mentioned. For example, if you're a practitioner, let's say a high-performance director or physiotherapist, and you've been asked, or it's part of your role, to decide on the availability of an athlete, it's likely part of your job and probably has been for quite a while. And we can get caught up in the semantics, but really how you arrive at that decision could be said to be form of injury prediction in and of itself. Sometimes you might just have a hunch that an athlete needs a day off. Other times you may have a rough likelihood in your head, or you might classify an athlete into a high or low risk group, depending on some things that you've observed. Or depending on which theory of decision making you want to adopt, you might say that experienced practitioners would take a group or a set of heuristics that they've built up over time to inform the decision on whether a player or an athlete should miss competition or perhaps alter their training in some way. Now, you could argue that none of the things I just described are prediction per se, but in essence, it's actually a very similar process to what I just described above, even if it's less structured and usually less formal. Practically speaking, the end result is exactly the same. A decision is made using some sort of information to alter planned activities of an athlete based on the notion that by doing what was planned in the first place would be adverse to their health. So if we revisit some of the terms I just mentioned, when we really challenge what they mean, we find that they really all fit under the umbrella of injury prediction. Even injury prevention, where we see a practitioner prescribing an athlete an exercise, they're doing so under the guise that by the athlete undertaking that particular exercise, they're helping to attenuate their risk. Because if they weren't, then you wouldn't prescribe the exercise in the first place. So whether it's explicitly stated or not, a causal relationship has been assumed between the benefit of that exercise and injury. So with that background out of the way, I want to outline four fundamental questions that first should be answered by anyone looking to work in this space. Let's start where any good project should and ensure that what we're looking to solve is actually worth solving. And of course this begs the question, is injury in sport actually a problem? Now of course our natural inclination is to say yes, of course it is, but that is an assumption perhaps worth challenging in many instances. It all depends really on how we frame the problem. At a really broad level, we might try and compare injury risk or rates of injury to other vocations outside of sport to answer this question. Obviously, being an athlete means you're more likely to be injured than, say, an office worker, but much less likely than, say, a logger or a roofer. 
If we're a little bit more practical with this, we might compare what happens now in a sport in terms of injury rates to what has happened in the past or perhaps against other sports. Another approach might be to benchmark against some kind of hypothetical or perhaps better yet simulated best case scenario that we could ever expect our sport to aspire to. For instance, what level of injury rates would we expect in a season of football for a professional team in order for that season to be considered a success? And what does good actually look like for a sport here? We need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that zero injury is not only not realistic, but what it would take to get there in many sports wouldn't be desirable either. So what is the magic number and how far away from it are you now? This should be the starting point for this problem. If you're not that far right now away from what the floor looks like, then you might come to the conclusion that injury isn't even a problem for your sport. Question two revolves around asking what actually is the problem. What I mean here is ensuring that you focus in on those injuries that are actually presenting the challenge. Now, it's tempting to throw all injuries into the same bucket, but the etiology of many are seriously different, as we know. Slow onset from excessive training load, freak, presumably unavoidable, those completely due to factors we have no control over. More on that last one later. The way in which we would set up any system to address these different types of injury is likely to be starkly different. So really, if you've progressed to this stage, it's about refining the problem. Is it all injuries that deserve our attention? Is even our ability to detect certain types of injury altering our perspectives on their prevalence? For instance, perhaps we now know more about certain types of injury that we didn't two decades ago, and so it stands to reason that it feels like certain types are becoming more of a problem, whereas in reality, we're just detecting them better. These are the types of considerations for this stage of project planning. Question three asks, is it a solvable problem? Once we've determined which injury or injuries are actually presenting as a problem for us, the next question we might ask would be, is this a problem that we can actually solve? Now, I'm on record many times as stating that injury is a complex problem, and much of the literature is starting to reach that point as well. So if we're starting there as a starting point, which you could of course debate, but if we are, then straight away we have to call into question our ability to directly influence it as we know that firstly we don't control complex systems and neither are they very predictable. Let's consider a soft tissue injury versus concussion or an accident. We have to question whether some of these, or in some cases all of them, are even preventable. Of course the irony is that these are often the types of injuries that get thrown to the side or excluded in injury modelling. And that's a failing of our recognition of that injury as a complex system. On episode 8, for instance, we had Dr. Ken Quarry talk about head injuries in rugby. How do we start to model that? There were, well, in my mind, there'd be a very broad set of measures that could be used, not just those that a wearable technology company was producing. Some of the interactions could be derivatives of other measures or downstream effects. For instance, the head injury could be due to poor technique. But this might have originated due to fatigue, which in turn was due to a player being at a position on the field because another preferred player missed the match due to disciplinary issues during the week. So if we look at a scenario like that, what part of the problem would you actually try and address? 
As I've said a few times on the show, I'm a, a huge fan of the Socratic method. And this is a perfect scenario for its application. So in summary, we're asking why and then asking why again and probably again. In the end, we might land on some of these injuries having origins in areas that we may have never considered and consequently, they're about as easy to predict as whether someone is going to be hit by a car. Of course, it's human nature to believe that the decisions that we make are somehow a major driving factor in whether an injury eventuates or not. But what if none of these metrics that we collect on how much someone trains or how they feel on a given day have anything to do with whether they get injured or not? This is why we should answer the previous two questions before getting to this point. For instance, I already discussed the importance of not only considering modifiable risk factors, but also non-modifiable. What about those factors that we not only can't control, but we also can't measure well? Particularly those that almost certainly play a major role, like genetics, which we coincidentally discussed on the last episode of the show. How would we act as a practitioner if we were to find that the number one reason behind a person's injury was their genetics? What would be the appropriate response at this point? Do we stop them from playing that sport altogether? What if the impact of all of the modifiable factors that we measure are so negligible that they pale into insignificance comparatively? Can we actually justify spending time to try and manipulate these, all just for a tiny benefit? It's obvious as to why we don't spend too much time on things like genetics in sport, because even though we suspect they're quite important, we know we need to first measure its impact more precisely. It reminds me of the old Einstein quote that not everything that matters can be measured, and not everything that is measured matters. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking of an example from your own career or sport of a time where you intervened and saved someone from an impending disaster. But also encourage you to challenge your ego at this point and ask yourselves around how much real evidence you collected that would actually stand up to external scientific scrutiny. Can you prove that what you did stopped that injury? To rehash another famous quote at this point, Chris Hitchens once said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and injury prediction should be no different. It begs a question as well, let's imagine that we are in charge of a particular sport and we bring together a committee and we all agree that there's too many injuries in a particular sport. If we put everyone's heads together to create a short list of all of the factors that were potentially contributing to this, controllable or otherwise, what would we come up with? For me, sure, a lot of the things that we measure now matter, and they probably would continue to matter in some small way, but there'd be a way down the list. At the top for me in a lot of sports would simply be playing or competing in the game, which puts you in a fundamental spot straight away as it means you'd need to change the very nature of that sport in order to change the injury risk. And we know this has been something that has happened in some sports. Rules have changed, for instance, to help protect the athletes. But if we're really honest, many of the other factors at the top of the list would also be either uncontrollable or maybe controllable but currently poorly measured. In many cases, so much so that we'd never use them for any of our prediction models with any great confidence. And so what can happen, in summary, is that our desire to make progress in this space supersedes our critical thinking. We forget that a lot of the metrics we use simply stem from convenience. We have them already collected for another purpose, and so we throw them into the mix. This leads to things like availability bias, 
us overinflating the importance of certain data for just about any purpose, simply because it's in front of our noses. So let's say that we've gotten to this point and decided that injury is in fact a problem in your organization and that you believe it's potentially solvable. There is still one more question that needs to be asked before we start to put our injury prediction plan in place, and that's, is the problem actually worth solving? I mentioned earlier whether we can justify spending time on trying to manipulate modifiable factors, particularly if their influence is much lesser than perhaps we might think. But before we roll out our initiative, we need to be clear not only on the current injury rates to inform whether the problem's worth solving, but also how the problem is specifically affecting the organization and how you're going to measure the success of your intervention. We see a heap of different measures used as success markers for injury prediction or prevention strategies in both practice and the literature from model technical considerations like its accuracy through to reductions in injury rates and athlete wages that are saved. There's heaps of possibilities here. I'm not here today to say which are best, except that probably multiple options is a good idea. But we should also at this point be clear on the negatives of acting on a prediction model, even a strongly performing one. The most common example that I hear in this respect centers on the cost of pulling athletes out of more sessions than they currently miss now, which is a likely outcome of most prediction models. If you're wondering how, well, if a model predicts an athlete being injured or is at risk of being injured, then typically the next step for a practitioner will be to try and manipulate those risk factors that have gone into making that prediction. Again, at least partly due to the availability bias I mentioned earlier, these are often factors that relate to the training or physical status of the athlete. Invariably, the decision by the practitioner results in the volume or intensity of training or competition being reduced in response to the supposed impact of these factors. So this practice begs a follow-up question. What increased number of sessions that are altered or missed by an athlete would constitute the model to be considered a failure, or at least not implementable? This question is actually worth asking even if a potential injury has been avoided. For instance, what would you rather have? A performing athlete at the top of physical condition that misses three to four weeks with an injury? Or a completely injury-free athlete that is available all year round but is under-conditioned because of the large number of training sessions that have had modified? This is a question that is genuinely worth asking. In addition to the potential outcome measures I've just stated, what about the athlete themselves as well? Are they happy to have their training altered, even if the potential benefit is made clear to them? If we don't stipulate these types of questions up front, we also run the risk of the narrative becoming manipulated to focus on a smaller selection of the outcome measures. This cherry picking happens all of the time in human behavior. For instance, in the past, I've seen examples that remind me of the gambler that tells their friends the story of the big win they had but neglects to mention all of the smaller losses. Being clear up front on the positives and negatives of the model implementation and how you're going to measure their project helps at least in part to avoid this. In summary, we should remember that there is always a cost to both action and inaction, not just in the outcomes but also the process. What will implementation of an injury prediction cost your organization from this perspective? It's more than just financial. What about the time spent on developing infrastructure for your system? What about diverting the attention of staff away from other areas 
the psychological conditions it exposes athletes to, and even perhaps the risk-taking culture of your organisation. Now, I know that for many of you, the idea of inaction in injury would cause you almost to feel like you're being negligent in your role. Just throwing our hands up and accepting injury doesn't feel like an option that any of us should accept because it feels like it's so important. But if indeed we do come to the conclusion at this stage that either it's perhaps not as big a problem as we thought and or we really don't have the ability to change it, then why spend so much of our time on it? We don't really see this kind of pragmatism anywhere enough in sport. I'm not saying that this is a decision that you will arrive at after following these steps, but I am saying that we should be empowered to act based on whether we land following this process of consideration. So that concludes the first part of this episode on how injury prediction actually could work. A whole heap of questions have been posed, some philosophical and hypothetical, others more practical and immediately implementable. I'd like to recommend, though, that you ask and ideally answer these before running headlong into the area. Join us next week where I will outline some of the key elements of the injury prediction pipeline that we also need to get right in order to make it a reality, from improved data collection through to modelling, what it means for decision-making, and ultimately evaluation. Until then, I'm Sam Robertson, and this has been One Track Mind. One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes, or recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute, and it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on social media, on Twitter or LinkedIn at TrackVU, at Instagram at Track.VU, or head to our blog at TrackVU.com. Thanks for listening to One Track Mind. See you next time.